Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, we have Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments here in the studio. We will talk about the election and the markets. We'll talk about the Fed, and we'll talk about what makes for a good stock investment. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. Paul and Stephen here in the studio on this very slow August week. Very slow. In the markets, in America, really. I mean, it's August. Everyone's on vacation. Down it's been shore, a slow month. Beaches. It's been a slow month. Very slow. However, we all know Labor Day is coming up. We all know September is coming up. The fall is coming. And things will probably ramp up significantly. Presidential election? Presidential election, Fed meetings, everything. With that in mind, to help uh, ease you back into the real world, we are very fortunate today to have in the studio with us Ken Fisher, who is founder and chairman of Fisher Investments, $68 billion in assets under management, a business he's been building up for, for three decades. He is a Forbes columnist, author of 11 books. Is it, It's 11, right, Ken? Uh, 11 books, really w- one of the big names in the investing world. I think you're the largest independent advisory, right? Isn't that true? By most standards in the world. By most standards, right. So important name to have in the studio to help you folks out there uh, get ready for what is sure to be a very interesting uh, three months. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in. And look, let, let's let's talk about it. Uh, there is an election coming up in, in, in less than three months. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you may have heard a little That's, bit about it. Oh. Uh, let, let's talk a little uh, bit uh, about- Has somebody written about it? Uh, one or two people. Oh. One or two people. Very prescient uh, the thinkers out there. Let's talk a little bit about, about the markets and politics. Sure. Um, not that I'm asking for your opinion on who's going to win or who you want to win or you're voting for. That's not really important. But uh, if, if you quickly could take a look at what you think will happen uh, if either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton were, were to win. I mean, what would you think might happen in the markets? What are you looking at? So to make a long story short, I think a very similar thing will happen regardless of which one wins. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one will win. Right. You know, the odds favor Ms. Clinton at this moment in time. But a lot of things can happen between yeah. now and November. Anyone that's overly arrogant uh, in markets makes a big mistake. Markets have a very clear history for which there are few exceptions. And I think this one may well be an exception. But if you just go back and look at the history of returns in election years and inaugural years, returns tend to be below average in an election year when we elect a Democrat and then high in the inaugural year. And the reverse is true, high when we, in the election year when we elect a Republican, but low in the inaugural year. They flip-flop. It's what I call the perverse inverse. And the fact is that, my opinion is, that that's because people get excited that the Republicans going to be sort of pro-market, pro-business, and in the election year, as that Republican's winning, markets like that, then in the inaugural year, they get disappointed with the Democrat. The flip side is true. They think the Democrat's going to be terrible, is going to win, takes down the returns in the election year, in the inaugural year, not as bad as they thought, so it flips and yeah. the surprises on the positive side. Could markets move off surprise? In this case, I think that's likely to be what happens happens if Ms. Clinton prevails. Mm-hmm. We get a below average but positive year in the election year. And then sim- simply other than the inaugural year of Jimmy Carter, every single Democratic uh, president's inaugural year, 
uh, since World War II has been double-digit positive. Double-digit, hmm. everyone but Jimmy Carter knows only negative 7%. The, the fact is that this time people, so many of them, are so afraid of Trump as the irregular thing right. as a Republican that you probably get the same thing with Trump that you get with Ms. Clinton, which is the fear of him in the election yeah. year if he prevails, followed by the fact that presidents don't have nearly as much power as people think they have. As yeah. Ronald Reagan well said, mm-hmm. that if you're a really capable president, you probably get two or three really important things done in your first term and less than that in your second term. Right. Yeah. Therefore, you don't get as much done as people think. So people say, what's the president going to do? This and 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 this. The answer is no. I don't know what a Mr. Trump or a Ms. Clinton would actually do when elected. Right, right. Uh, but it'll be a small subset of the things they talk about. It'll be the ones that, as they actually start facing the levers of power, they think they can actually do something about. Mm-hmm. And there'll be few. And so, therefore, there's not going to be as much as people fear or hope. And people kind of fear Ms. Clinton for the reasons we all know about. People fear Mr. Trump for other reasons. The fact is, probably with both of them, that causes this year to be below average. And probably this is the exception if a Republican gets elected with Mr. Trump, that the inaugural year is the positive year of surprise. If you go back, whether it's Nixon, with the exception of George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, both Bush elections, uh, if you look at Reagan, the inaugural years for all of them were abysmal. So then, and, and look, I know the election for, years were good. Yeah, I, I know forecasting is is throwing darts, basically, particularly but, about the future. <laughs> I, if you look at the market now, the market—I don't know what the S and P is up year to date exactly right now. But what is it, six, seven percent, something like yeah, that? And it's just, just under seven, and it's just been rallying seven. since you know right, Brexit. Right. Do you do you think then that maybe the market's put in the high for the year already? No, I, no. I don't necessarily think that, but I still don't think this is an above average gangbusters year by any standard. Yeah. Uh, l- let me say that in the beginning of the year, I started calling this, and I'm extending that view off into time a little bit, uh, the year of falling uncertainty. This may be the couple of years of falling uncertainty. At the beginning of the year, we had all the uncertainty about was China going to take down the economy? Mm -hmm. How many times in 2016 was the Fed going to raise rates? Was Brexit going to be the biggest disaster since Bloody Mary? Uh, What about the presidential election with 16 people running on the Republican side? And and at that point in time, you know, and I, I don't mean to say anything negative about anybody, but... There are very few people that ever were just absolutely heartthrobby in love with Ms. Clinton either. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's the Democratic nominee, but she doesn't exactly get the heartthrob that at this moment in time a John Kennedy got or Barack Obama got. I mean, both or, candidates have or very Bill, low yes, you know, approval yeah. ratings with the, the, their, the general uh, she, public. She, she's the nominee, and she's probably going to win, but she's not exactly the heartthrob. No. Uh, she's, she's not exactly Bill Clinton in 1992. And uh, in that regard, you know, all of these uncertainties at the beginning of the year, they just keep slowly fading away and markets like falling uncertainty. So we've got a non-exciting – but this whole bull market has been one big – I mean, it's a a really long bull market. I think it's going to be the longest bull market in history, but it's a joyless bull market. It's grinding. (laughs) It's this long – 
bull market that you got to be in and you got to do if you're equity oriented, but it's not exactly the joyful time right. period. It's right. not the big bang years. People call it the most hated bull market. Yeah, in yeah I mean, look, the, the first couple of years of it, you were literally in the shadow of the crisis, right? right. So nobody was confident. And then even after you got past that and the market kept going up, uh, people were still worried. I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean to, you know, to sound like a horse's patoot, which I do really well, but I was really confident in that time period because every time you have a big bust, it's followed by a V-like mm-hmm. pattern. I mean, if you go back and look at my writings in Forbes at the time or my other writings, I was talking about the nature of a V and the a straight down steep decline is followed soon thereafter by a straight up steep move on the other side of the V. And you don't have to know much to know that. All you got to do is see the magnitude of the decline and you say, we're months away from a big up move. Hmm. And you got to have confidence in that because fundamentally markets work the way markets work. And markets are more powerful than all this other stuff when you get right down to it. And people forget that. But one of the reasons why, I mean, this has felt like one of the most hated sort of bull market or the most hated is simply like you did have that V recovery in the stock market, but the economy has sort of hasn't followed suit. It and, hasn't, and people feel like they've yeah. walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, instead of they fear no evil, they actually do fear evil. Yeah. And, uh, and the economy has been joyless. It's been both domestically and globally uh, the lowest growth rate economic expansion of anyone's lifetimes. Uh, even though it's been long, it's been low. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, that doesn't get people getting all juiced up. Hmm. That's absolutely right. Uh, it's a good place to take a break. Let's take a break. We will come back on the other side of this message with more from Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments. Hey, this is Stephen Perlberg from the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Are you interested in the biggest changes in the media and advertising business from Facebook to Snapchat? Tune into the WSJ Media Mix podcast for interviews with some of the biggest names in media, from Gawker CEO Nick Denton to Turner President David Levy. For more, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beef Cop Podcast. Everyone, Paul and Stephen here in the studio. And listen, for more great podcasts from the Wall Street Journal, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. A lot of offerings for you besides Money Beat. I know you subscribe to Money Beat and you love it and we love bringing it to you. We also have Your Money Matters, the free-for-all, speakeasy, heard on the street, WSJ Opinion, the tech news briefing, plenty out there for you. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at WSJ Podcasts. And if you're not already a subscriber, you can become one. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and also on your Google Play Music app on your Android devices. We are here today with Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments just talking about uh, the election and the markets. And Ken, you mentioned that you knew we were going to, the market was going to rebound. You knew the market was going to rebound uh, in 2009 because you talked about this V-shape, the big drop. I'm wondering if you thought that because that's how the markets react or you thought that because it was kind of clear that the Fed was going to put its thumb down on the markets. Where does Fed policy play into what's happened in this post-crisis era? Uh, so I'm going to get trashy here. Uh, <laughs> the fact is central banks are idiots. Uh, they've always been idiots. Uh, Milton Friedman would have delineated in the 1950s and documented in his great book, Monetary History of the United States in 1960 with Andrew Schwartz, that 
you know, central banks can't really fine-tune anything. And every time they try, they screw up. Or not every time, but most times, more than not. And fundamentally, what they should do is kind of look at what they think the real growth rate of the economy should be or what they want the inflation rate to be and look at simple quantity of money numbers and steer at that and not try to do all this interest rate jiggling that they always do. And no one listened to Friedman then, and they don't listen to that view today. And when you become the member of the Board of Governors, you decide that you ought to be pulling the levers and and doing cute and fancy things. I mean, these people... they got a guy named Brainerd who's not too swift. They got a guy named Bullard who's timid as the Dickens. Uh, they got a, a, a female named George, uh, a, another Ms. named Mister. Uh, they got a guy with my last name, Fisher, that can't spell his name correct. And they're run by a woman named Yellen who couldn't raise her voice in a drunken New Year's Eve party. I mean, these people are just screwed up trying to fine tune things that they can't do. And fundamentally, they shouldn't try. They shouldn't try to make these decisions that they always try to make. And if you put anybody else in that seat, uh, you, you know, uh, William McChesney Martin said, the longest running head of the Fed, when you become head of the Fed, you take a little pill and it makes you forget everything you ever knew and it lasts just as long as you're head of the Fed. And he was succeeded by Arthur Burns, who was the best prepared person at that point in time in history to ever be head of the Fed. And he was a disaster as head of the Fed. And afterwards, when he was asked, why did you do all these things you said you'd never do? He said, because I took Martin's pill. And the fact I of the matter Martin is, Martin was a good Fed chairman, though. Yeah, I'm not criticizing Martin. Yeah, and and actually, Martin's got marvelous lines. Like you know, Martin's one well, of Martin's lines. Well, he's a punch bowl guy. Yeah, he's a right, punch yeah, bowl guy. Right. He's got marvelous lines. That's not my point. My point is that fundamentally, you put these guys in front of the levers, and they got to push them and pull them. Mm-hmm. And the pushing and pulling is silly. And the notion that little wiggles in interest rates have big moves on the economy is demonstrably false. The Inelasticity of demand for money is actually pretty clear. And if you move interest rates short or long, up or down a hair's whisker, it's impossible to see in history that that has big impacts on the real world. Because fundamentally, if you're doing a short or long-term project and the move of an eighth or a quarter of a point is what's going to determine if it's economically viable or not, you don't have a good project to begin with. So do do you think the Fed should have done nothing or... What they've done has been ineffectual, and the market would have recovered anyhow? Yes, the market yes. would have recovered anyway. Well, uh, might it have recovered a month or two earlier or later? Yeah. But, you know, I'm just going to say in my own bombastic way that if – and I think it's a scandal. I mean, I just think it's a scandal. If the minutes of the FOMC meetings from October of 2008 mm-hmm. had been released – Two months earlier before Ms. Yellen was confirmed and you could see what she said at that point in time, she never would have been confirmed as head of the Fed. The fact of the matter is she was so clearly clueless, as were most of us, in October of 2008. I mean, she was more cavalier than the three musketeers at at, at some, you know, function with – only 10 of the Queen's men. She was I also – she was warning about – Not in October of 2008. No, but I mean be- before the crisis even hit, she was talking about the she, problems in the economy. In, in the FOMC – When she was at the San Francisco in, Fred, in the, Fed. In the FOMC meetings, I mean she, she is – let me just say this in a different way. The Fed oversees banks. Mm-hmm. 
None of those people have any real-world experience in banks. I mean, the, the rules are run by a guy named Tarullo, who never saw a rule he didn't like, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then they got Dudley Do-Right, who, you know, couldn't do right if he had to, uh, from, you know, from your Fed here. And the fact of the matter is these folk uh, are not people with – I mean, the, the core business of banking is – to take in short-term deposits as the basis for making long-term loans. Mm -hmm. What they should do is set the yield curve appropriately and leave it alone and not try to fiddle with it and let the banking system lend and have standard banking regulations and not try to be too cute. They can't do that because they don't understand banking. They don't understand lending. They don't understand collecting assets. None of these people have any real-world banking experience. None. The fact of the matter is, why do you want a world regulated by people with no experience in the doing of it at all? It's a silly concept. Are we going to have dentists regulated by people that don't know anything about teeth and have never actually been inside somebody's mouth? It'd be silly. What about doctors? We can do it that way. We're going to have the doctors ruled by people that don't know anything about inside your body. I mean, it's silly. I can't believe I'm actually in the position of, of am I defending the Fed? Was I defending the Fed there for a second, Crosser? No, it's, I, I mean, not completely. Like it. sounded like it's, a it's, As close as you can get to defending the Fed. <laughs> yeah. There is no real defense for the Fed, and Milton Friedman would have said that in the 1950s. There's different views about what should be done, mm-hmm. and, and Milton Friedman was never an argue, uh, you know, a fan of abolishing the Fed. His point was you, you just create a simple formula for what right. they should do and leave it at that. Let, let me ask you this. Um, this cycle, however long you, you want to define it as, uh, and I want to ask you, because you know, you've, you've been around for, for a while. You've seen a couple of these things come and go. How unusual is the current state of the economy, sort of the, the fundamentals, the underlyings, the market? Uh, is this, a, is this a, a normal market that is just kind of having extreme swings, or, or is it unusual? Is this a different time that we're in, or are we in the same time and it just kind of feels different? Uh, where, where do you place this? You know, things are different and are also always the same, both at the same time. Mm-hmm. The, the part that's different about this world, which is valid and true, uh, is that the growth rate of the economy domestically and globally is very low compared to any economic expansion in our times. Uh, that's not because of um, a lack of fiscal stimulus. It's not because of monetary policy. Uh, it's fundamentally because we have gotten to a point where there is excess governmental regulatory overreach in almost all parts of government, and businesses are timid to move into features where they don't understand the regulatory landscape ahead of them, and therefore they're less expansionary than they should be relative to the circumstances that they confront otherwise. The fact of the matter is, and I've never seen this before in my life, the aftermath of that valley of the shadow of death that we saw in 2007-9 has led to all forms of governmental regulatory trying to step outside of their boundaries into things that they never previously touched and trying to deal with them. And so, for example, in my little firm, uh, where you know we only have a few thousand employees, we get impacted by regulatory from all over that we never used to see because they never thought they were supposed to come. And when I say that, they have no actual official authority. But when the government, a government of any type, comes knocking on your door demanding stuff, you don't 
sit there and not take that seriously. You do take that mm-hmm. seriously. And this is going on in every form. There is no concept that says in our society today that Adam Smith's notion of the invisible hand was a pretty good regulator by itself, and maybe you shouldn't overregulate the thing. A lot of your listeners are just going to think what I'm saying right now is crazy. But the fact is governmental overreach has caused businesses to be more timid than they would be when confronted with the same circumstances otherwise. And that's true in almost all realms of endeavor. It's true in almost every country. Do you, I, I mean, how much of that also yeah. is just the, the simple fact that, like, we went through, you know, the financial crisis and the regulators, governments were roundly criticized for being asleep at, you know, uh, well, you know, all these things were happening. And suddenly, I mean, it's just the it feels to me like the, this is the pendulum swinging. Steve, I think you're right about that in that they were criticized by a public that said we should be protected from these things that happened that were bad that we don't particularly understand and didn't particularly right. understand. But the fact is the government doesn't have the ability to protect you from most all that stuff, uh, whether with all good intention. Right. Uh, and then secondarily, for the most part in government, it's true that if you give people in power the opportunity to take more power, they will. But also, I mean, it was it, an opportunity for them. Right. And, and, you know, we all know that government is also very good at making things um, very complex when they <laughs> want to do regulation. No, they keep everything simple. Look at Homeland Security. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you Dodd-Frank. Can, you can see that in any airport. It's real simple <laughs> and hey, effective. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about actual investing. Um, I want to get your take on just – you know, just sort of fundamentals of investing. What you look for in a stock. You're a very long-term investor, so I mean, what are the what are the valuation metrics? I think of it this way. Um, I know your 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 father famously bought Motorola in the '50s and held on to it mm-hmm. till till he passed away, I believe. Right? Mm-hmm. Great investment for him, Motorola. How I you know because I was thinking when I was reading, I was thinking, well, boy, if you bought Motorola, which of course is since blown five or ten years yeah. ago, exactly. My my question is, how do you know when you buy a stock like Motorola in the fifties or whatever? How do you know what is a good company to invest in from a bad company to invest in? What are the kinds of fundamental things that can tell somebody this is this is where I'm I'm going to do well with this investment? So, so there's uh, you know the biggest single feature you need to do is know who you are yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and different people have different views as to how to go about doing things, and I think that's all good and well. But fundamentally what I would say is you can't really make an investment forever. You make an investment and then you keep monitoring it, and things may change, and you know that. Uh, everybody knows that. Simply, it kind of works like this. In early in a cycle, in a period like 2009, 10, 11, you want a thin gross margin company, thin gross operating profit margin company that will benefit by the expansion. They get killed in a downturn. Mm-hmm. They bounce back like a depressed spring. And you can hold that for two, three, four years. Later in a cycle, you want that company that's got a defendable fat gross operating profit margin. 
because they can use the benefits of the fat gross operating profit margin to amortize against their large unit volume against lesser competitors, and they can gain market share if they've got half a clue. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, there are firms in history that have squandered the fat gross operating profit margin, but for the most part, the latter part of a cycle and the downturn tend to do well with stocks that have fat gross operating profit margins. The early features of a cycle tend to be companies with thin gross operating profit. So that's your first litmus test. Mm -hmm. Your second part is, does the company actually understand what to do in that circumstance? Does the fat gross operating profit margin company understand what it is and have a plan to gain share based off of their ability to amortize their large unit volume across that to develop either marketing or product research or some form of innovation relative to their thinner margin competitors mm-hmm. and their lesser competitors that have less, you know. So then if you can actually link fat market share with fat gross operating profit margin with a management that knows what to do with that, that's the ideal in, the, in, a, in a latter stage cycle. Early on, you want the thin gross operating profit margin company with growth potential that benefits off of economic expansion. So if you think of one that's the reverse of that, thin, but doesn't have the economic expansion, think of a materials company like a cement company. Mm -hmm. Very competitive, thin gross operating profit margin. In a downturn, they get killed. But when the economy bounces back, they bounce back hard until they've reached their capacity. But they don't have any growth capability. If you throw on growth capability on top of that, like thin gross operating profit margin in technology, where you can gain share, then does the management understand that's what they are and have a plan for it? And then you have to actually figure out your exit point. And your exit point's later in the cycle when you want to shift to that fat gross operating profit margin company. How tricky is that to pull off, though? I mean, I I know a lot of— The real key is just largely to define— where are we in the cycle, yeah. more or less without trying to be too cute? In, in a period like 2009, it's easy to know. We just had a big downturn. Yeah. Ahead of us, we got to be in the beginning of a cycle mm-hmm. somewhere. Maybe not this month, maybe not next month, maybe not three months from now, but before 12 months for sure. Let's get the thin gross operating profit margin company with this, with that, with the other, as we talked about. After you've had a few years go by, you know, you're moving along and you're later in the cycle. I don't think anybody thinks we're early in a cycle now. Right. You, you know, you, you say, are we at the end? Are we in the downturn? I don't think so. I think this is going to be the longest economic expansion in history, the most joyless but long. Yeah. It keeps grinding because we keep looking for ghosts around every corner. And if we keep looking for them, we tend not to run into real problems. But that having been said, simply, um, my view is that it's not hard to know. I mean, it's hard to know, are you at the top? Is this month the month? Is two months from now the month? But to know roughly we're about here and not there, and these are the kind of stock you have in this approximate kind of a time period. And, I mean, I'm trying to make this simple, but if you try to get too cute with it, you're you're like being the Fed we talked about earlier, being too cute. Being too cute is arrogant and silly and stupid and blows up on you. Right. So then do you, for a lot of people, you know, and everyone talks about passive investing by index funds and just stay in the market forever. I mean – I have no I have no problem with that if people actually do what most people yeah, do is uh, in the next downturn, they blow out. Right. 
That's, that's what most that, That's the big question that we've been talking about on this podcast for a right, while. Right, exactly. Is that passive in- investing makes a lot of sense, except for the human nature you oftentimes gets in the way of it being successful for the individuals. Well, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've seen uh, the Dalbar studies that show that the people that actually invest in no-load funds do worse than the people that invest in load funds, despite yeah. the fact that the no-load funds do better than the load funds, because the people that buy the no-load funds trade them every 18 months, and the people that buy the load funds hold them forever. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, they, they suffer. They'd be better off if they could buy the no load and hold it forever. But they don't. Yeah. Because they feel the, the people buy the load funds feel trapped and penalized right. by the load. So they don't sell yeah. the people that buy the no loads. Tr- trade, treat them like trading vehicles. You treat them like trading vehicles. It's silly. Yeah. Uh, but before we let you go, are there any names out there that are kind of on your radar now that either you, know, you may have already bought or, or you're thinking about? Um, is there anything out there that kind of whets your appetite these days? Uh, let me just be r- real clear. Uh, we can go there, but before we go there, I already defined what you want to look at, which is fat gross operating profit margin, mm-hmm. companies that know what to do with it. So now you're talking about things like in tech. I mean, and, and, and literally, the latter stage of bull markets are also tend to be dominated by bigger companies, not tiny ones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like, I mean, it's real simple, things like, Alphabet, a.k.a. Google, real easy. Fat gross operating profit margins, knows what yeah. to do with it. Uh, if you move into uh, healthcare, you know, pick any one of 10. They're all going to do okay because yeah. they all compete against each other, you know, pretty much direct to direct. Uh, I, I, I'd be overweight uh, drugs and uh, tech and uh, underweight the boring stuff, industrials, hmm. uh, continue to be underweight materials. Materials typically do not do well in the late stages of a cycle, and they get killed in a downturn. Uh, and then the people forget that energy is just the biggest material. That's all energy is, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just the biggest material. Energy and materials almost always correlate uh, pretty highly. Yeah. Uh, if, if one's going to do well, the other's going to do well, people always forget that. So you look at those two together to see what's going on because sometimes you don't see it in the one, you see it in the other. Um, and uh, then right now, of course, I go the other way from what seems to be the fad. Right now you can just read this endless amount of fad about wanting to buy dividend. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. fact of the matter is you want to focus on total return. Not di- Nothing wrong with dividend right. if it's included within total return. But at the expense of total return, it's a mistake. It's just a trap waiting for you. And that mm-hmm. trap gets killed on the downside when you finally get to the downside. Yeah. Which is what people talk about is everyone crowds into a trade and then things turn and yeah, that, you know, the, 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 pigs to the slaughter. When, when it all we'll comes in the yield and it's not part of the total return because yeah. you're paying out too much, uh, when you get to the downside and your earnings get slashed and your dividends threatened, the stock gets killed. I mean, look at what happened to the MLPs in 2014-15, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Uh, you know, again, which is, people didn't actually get the notion that that's a double bet. It's a bet on the yield and it's a bet on energy. And, and you got the two getting killed together at the right. same time. I mean, there's people that just got decimated yeah. and not thinking they were doing something safe, which it isn't at all. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place to end. I think that's a good place to end. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Ken Fisher, thank you for coming in. It was My great. pleasure. It was great. Next time you're in New York, you have to swing by. Love to. All right. Yeah. Uh, everyone, thank you for listening, and we will catch up with you later this week. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.